Good evening, Disciples Church. Would you please stand for the reading of the scripture? Tonight's scripture is from Mark 6, verses 30 through 44. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him that they had all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest alone. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among, among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good evening, Disciples Church. Good to see all of you, and thanks again for making it out this evening. If you're not there already in your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. My name is Jonathan Mosher, and it's uh, my privilege and my honor to be able to open the Word with you and for you this evening. For the first week, and I think three weeks, we have beautiful warm, sunny weather outside, so we're all going to enjoy that um, tonight, and it's, it is so good to be with you. Um, each week as we gather together, I'm, I'm reminded of God's goodness in drawing together a people for his own name um, in this region. We're so thankful for you, thankful that you're here, um, and excited to look at this text tonight. This is our 21st sermon in our series on Mark. If you've been paying attention and counting, this is our 21st sermon, so if you've made it thus far, um, really great work. Um, and, and if you've been with us, what you've heard us talk a lot about is the motivation for why Mark wrote this book. What was it that he was trying to convey first to the early believers in the city of Rome who were undergoing persecution and difficulty? And ultimately, what was it that he was trying to communicate to us today? And what's fascinating about the way that Mark writes this book is he focuses 16 chapters on three years of Jesus' life. There's virtually nothing that's told to us throughout the context of this book about Jesus' upbringing or his childhood, some of the stories that we find in the other Gospels. There's very little um, about after his ascension. This is really just focused on Jesus' ministry. And if you were to divide the book of Mark into two equal parts, which you can do fairly easily, it's 16 chapters, um, what you see is that there's really a style or an approach that Mark has when he writes this. 
because the first eight chapters of this book are devoted to following Jesus in those early couple years of his ministry as he moves his way from the south to the north, preaching and teaching and performing miracles and healing as he's ministering to people and caring for people. And then there's kind of a break in the book of, in, in chapter eight, and then Jesus travels back down to the south towards Jerusalem, ultimately to the cross. And chapters 11 through 16, the last five chapters of this book, are devoted entirely to Jesus' death and resurrection. That's a lot of time that Mark's going to spend in Jesus while talking about his pending death and then ultimately the narrative of his death and resurrection in itself. And in that, we kind of get a picture, really, of what Mark finds to be most valuable. It's a theme that we find throughout the New Testament, which is that this, the idea, the narrative, the story of Jesus Christ, who is God, coming to earth and ultimately suffering on the cross, dying and rising again, is the theme of the gospel. It's central to everything that we do. And so I just mention all of that so that you have some context as we approach this particular chapter this evening, as we approach this halfway mark, this is arguably the moment in Jesus' life where his fame is at its peak. This is the time when his name has spread so far and so wide that there's hardly a person in this region who doesn't know about Jesus Christ. And at this point, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people have heard him speak, they've seen him They've followed him into synagogues, out into the wilderness. They've seen him perform miracles. They've seen him live his life in ministry. And as we approach this halfway mark mark of of, of this book, we find Jesus' most famous miracle. It's a Sunday school miracle. It's one that if you grew up in or around the church, undoubtedly you heard this story told. You probably had visual aids where, where, where a teacher actually brought in um, bread and maybe brought in a little can of sardines or something like that to kind of demonstrate to you what this little boy's lunch would have looked like. Maybe you had a flannel graph if you had a really cool teacher who could actually show you visually what this would have looked like. But that's the story that we're given here. And, that, and the feeding of the 5,000 is significant for at least a couple of reasons. It's significant, first of all, because of the sheer number of people who witnessed this event. This didn't happen in a back room. This didn't happen in a backwater village. This happens with thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people witnessing and seeing firsthand what Jesus was going to accomplish. And second of all, it's, it's noteworthy because this is the only miracle outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that is recorded in all four Gospels. In other words, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all thought this story was so important and of such impact in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ and in the life and ministry of those to whom he was caring for that they all wanted to record it. So yes, the story forces us, just even upon the initial reading, it forces us to encounter the divinity of Jesus. Who is this one who could take a little boy's lunch and feed thousands of people with it, but in a way that Mark is uniquely adept at doing, he's revealing Jesus' humanity through it as well. And there is much for us to learn practically through it. So look, if you would, beginning in verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while, for many were coming and going. And they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. 
And Matthew's account of the same story specifies that when Jesus had heard the news about John the Baptist's death, he withdrew from this place in a boat to a desolate place by himself. So think if you can to get yourself in the mindset of these people. Think about all that Jesus and the disciples had experienced and been through to this point in their lives. I mean, the apostles, for the first time since they've been with Jesus Christ, had just been sent out. They had been watching Jesus minister. They had been watching him preach and teach. They'd been listening to his messages. They'd been having conversations and asking questions. They'd seen him perform miracles and do all of the different things that Jesus was doing. And so what we discovered two weeks ago in the text that we looked at is that Jesus finally turns. And in this act of discipleship, training them and bringing them along, after having allowed them to to view his ministry, he now says, now you go and do the same thing. And you can kind of imagine even these men who knew Jesus while standing there and kind of looking at themselves and looking around, who's he talking to? He wants us to go do the same thing that he's been doing this whole time? And yes, that's what they've been charged with. So they go out and they begin to minister and they begin to do works of healing and preaching and teaching and caring. They're doing all of this stuff, and they find themselves now in this moment absolutely exhausted. I mean, they are worn out. They now, for the very first time, have experienced the kind of attention and the kind of demand that to this point only Jesus Christ himself could have garnered. And in returning to Jesus, listen to this, in returning to Jesus, they are demonstrating their need for him and his unique role of authority in their life. So one commentator said it this way. He said, the gathering of the disciples to Jesus means that in the midst of busyness and business, they are accountable to him alone. And the greater the demands on them, the greater their need to be alone with Jesus. Here we find the disciples finding their rest in the presence of their master. And for his part, Jesus, Jesus likewise has been busy. He's been ministering to the needs of the crowds. He's finally just heard news that John the Baptist, this man, his own cousin, for whom he had tremendous respect, John the Baptist has been murdered at the hands of Herod Antipas. And on top of physical exhaustion, he is now spiritually and emotionally drained. Because here's what we know about Jesus that we don't often recognize or think about Jesus. It is in his humanity and in his demonstration of emotions that you see ultimately what God wired into all of us. Do you remember in John chapter 11 when Jesus hears the news that his friend Lazarus died and we're told that he weeps at the death of his friend? A tremendous outpouring of emotion. Do you remember him in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was sweating, as it were, great drops of blood? He was feeling the anxiety and the stress of the unique situation in which he found himself. See, Jesus is capable of, capable of tremendous emotion. He feels things deeply, and it's something that we find all throughout the New Testament. And on top of all the physical tiredness and everything else he's experienced, he now takes this emotional wound into his heart. His friend, his ministry partner, his cousin, brutally murdered, beheaded for standing for what was right, for proclaiming God and his repentance. See, this sort of exhaustion is what ministry is 
this, this could sound a little self-serving, so hopefully you'll extend some grace, but, but, but here's one of the unique things uh, about what ministry can do in a formal sense, right? When you're, uh, I, can, I can tell you this, there is no time of the week where I am more physically and emotionally and mentally exhausted right now than on Sunday evenings. When I get home from this, I will, I will probably just crash out after eating something. And I say that not, not to get any sort of response from you, but just to say, if, if, if any of you have ever been in the, in the position of ministering in a formal sense, there's a unique weight in it, right? Because there's a, there's a physical presentation that's happening, there's something physically that's occurring, there's an emotional outpouring, there's a spiritual component. The whole of your being, the whole of your being is included when you are, when you are entering into ministry. And that is, unique, that is not unique to formal ministry. It's the very same thing that happens when you have a difficult conversation with a friend or a coworker or a loved one, where you start talking about your faith and the compassion of Jesus Christ. And yes, there's that excitement in the moment where you're able to share your faith and share God's love for somebody. But as you begin to have that back and forth conversation, and as they ask difficult and challenging questions, and as you're having to try to think on your feet and at the same time rely wholly on the Holy Spirit to give you answers for things that you cannot, that you cannot come up with on your own, you walk away exhausted. So now imagine doing all of that and added to it you find out what Jesus just found out, which is that this man that he loves is dead. See, ministry brings with it exhaustion and that is not unique to formal ministry. It is the everyday high calling of discipleship. It is part and parcel of the life to which we've been called. And there are many of these fraught moments. So what does Jesus do? He takes the disciples and he withdraws. And the ESV translate this, translates this particularly well. It says they went to a desolate place. Some of your translations may say a desert place. It's actually not a great translation because the word that's used here specifically means uh, that they were going off into solitude, into isolation. They were going off to be alone. Jesus is undoubtedly emotional. He's grieving. He's exhausted. He needed to be with his father. And in doing so, Jesus is modeling and communicating both to the apostles and to us the importance of solitude and silence. The forgotten discipline of the modern Christian life. See, Jesus understood that true spirit-led ministry always comes from a place of profound rest and time with the Father. And Jesus understood very well what in the words of one man, you cannot give what you do not possess. Here's what I mean by that. How can you offer the hope of spiritual peace if you haven't experienced it? How can you offer the promise to others of Jesus' easy yoke and light burden if you are attempting to pull the plow by your own strength to the point of your own exhaustion? Unless your spiritual efforts for God are born of the spiritual rest that you find in God, your ministry will not match your message. And the truth is, there was more work to be done. There were more folks to be healed. There was more to be saved. There was more people that needed to be cared for. Jesus could have very easily justified the urgency of his work. And he could have neglected this moment of rest, this time away with his father, this time to pull away from the busyness of life because there was so much yet to be done. People's lives were quite literally at stake. 
But because Jesus did what the Father told him to do, he would not let the tyranny of what was urgent undermine his rest in the sovereign grace of his Father. And by Jesus pulling away to a place of solitude, he models for us in this moment of human exhaustion and hardship that we need to make time to be alone with the Father. So Eugene Peterson said it this way. He said, silence is the prerequisite to hearing. If we reject silence, our words are reduced to puffing up our own shriveled selves. If we talk all the time, or let others talk all the time, our ears and our mouths are filled with cliches and platitudes, mindless chatter and pretentious gibberish. But in silence, language is renewed. In the absence of human sound, it becomes possible to hear the logos, the word of God that gives shape and meaning to our words. See, this is part of the reason that as, as a part of our worship service at Disciples Church, we often take time for silence and stillness. If you've been around and you wonder, why do these people do that? Like two or three minutes, it's a long time for a group to be quiet. What is the deal with the silence in the church? This is exactly it. This is exactly the reason. It's a demonstration of what it is to be alone with the Father. It's a proclamation by virtue of our stillness and silence that we are in desperate need of our Father. It's a declaration that when we stop, the Holy Spirit continues to work. That ultimately God's will is not, is not ultimately dependent on you. But that he invites you into the work of the ministry. It's the heart of the prayer that Cole read for us today. And for some of us, this may be the only time in the course of your week or in the course of your month where you actually have silence. Where although you do many good things and you read the word and you spend time in prayer and then you meet with others, you may be neglecting the solitude and the rest that God intends for you. And here's what we find out about Jesus. He absolutely refuses to do that. He refuses to let the urgency and the busyness of the world impede on his time alone with the Father. And if Jesus himself frequently took time away from the demands of the world to be alone with his Father, how much more desperately do we need it? See, Jesus invites us to rest in him in much the same way that the disciples did by being alone with him. And he continues in verse 33, Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went to shore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So picture this, if you will. Jesus and the disciples head off. They recognize their need to be alone with the Father, to have this time away. The disciples are able to take a minute to, to eat and to recharge and to spend time with Jesus Christ. And, and, and so as they're on this boat ride, Jesus eventually goes off on his own to a desolate place. The disciples most likely go down to the crowds and begin to have conversations with them and interact, interact with them. And as Jesus is coming down from this desolate place, he sees this massive 
group of people who are desperately in need. The crowds have grown exponentially larger throughout the region, especially now that news has traveled throughout the land that John the Baptist had been killed. Everyone wants to know, what is Jesus going to say next? What is he going to do? Everybody knew about the relationship that Jesus and John the Baptist had. They knew about the, the brotherly love that existed in that relationship, the care that they had one for another. They were dying to hear how Jesus was going to respond. And in verse 44, we're told that the number of men gathered that day, and this is specifically a count of the actual males that were there. The word is, that's used is andros, specifically meaning men. The number of those men was 5,000 men. I mean, Matthew's account goes so far as to say that there was 5,000 men besides women and children. So scholars are, are, are guesstimating that the actual crowd size might have been as many as 15 to 20,000 people. I mean, try to imagine that many people gathered in the wilderness to hear Jesus preach. Just for a point of reference, the Pfizer Forum holds just over 17,000 people. So we're talking about a pre-COVID era NBA-sized crowd gathered to hear Jesus. And apart from perhaps the triumphal entry of Jesus where he, where he rides into the city of Jerusalem, the occasion that we remember on Palm Sunday, this is the peak of Jesus' popularity. Some commentators have gone as far as to suggest that the use of the phrase sheep without a shepherd wasn't so much a pastoral reference, but that that, in conjunction with the count of 5,000 specific men, actually had military roots in its context. That there's potential that these people were, were gathering without a leader. That they were hoping for a political revolution. They were hoping for him to be the Messiah that they desired. That he would lead a coup against Herod Antipas in response to the murder of John. But listen, whatever their motivation was for coming to Jesus that day, he was moved with compassion for them. In fact, the phrase that's translated moved with compassion literally means that he was gripped by compassion. That he was emotionally captivated by their need and by their eagerness to see him. So hear this, they may have been coming to him for any one of a number of reasons, but he saw their true need. He saw the reason that was under their reasons. And this is something that we see all throughout Jesus' ministry. You remember the woman with the issue of blood who came to Jesus and she comes to him just hoping to be healed, hoping to have this issue that's beset for 12 years to finally go away. When, when she reaches out and touches him, yes, she's healed, but do you remember what Jesus then did? He turns to her and he says, your, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. You're at peace with God and you're at peace with man. She found a wholeness that day beyond what she could have imagined. Beyond what she would have even thought to have asked for. If you remember the story of Jesus and his interaction with the blind beggar, the man asks for his sight to be renewed. He says, Jesus, I just want to be able to see again. And upon healing this man completely of his blindness, where this man's vision has been, has been perfectly restored, Jesus goes so far as to say that he's also received salvation. See, people come to Jesus for all sorts of reasons. 
oftentimes even selfishly motivated. And yet in his grace, Jesus sometimes grants them their deepest need that they may not have even known existed. And in this case, Jesus sees people who are like sheep without a shepherd. These are spiritual vagabonds. They're lost, they're malnourished, they're confused. Their spiritual needs have not been met by the religious leaders of the day. And the narrative here indicates that for hours, literally hours, he did nothing but tend to them. He cares for their needs, he teaches them. Verse 35, and when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countrysides and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And this is sort of a funny exchange if you read it. The disciples come to Jesus with an absolutely reasonable expectation. There's 5,000 men, likely between 15 and 20,000 people in total here to, to, to listen to Jesus preach and to see his ministry and to watch him interact. It's now getting to be supper time. The people are hungry. There are no towns or villages anywhere near them that could, that could feed that many people. So the disciples come to Jesus and say, you've got to disperse this crowd. These people need to eat. And if they're going to eat, they need to be able to get back into the town so they can get to the markets before they close. And to their reasonable request, Jesus gives an unreasonable and impossible response. He says, you go buy them food. You provide them the meal that they actually need. And their response is exactly what you'd expect. Do you have any idea how much money that's going to cost and we're told in John's account that Philip runs the math and very quickly responds to Jesus saying, it's going to cost 200 denarii just to give each person here enough food to satiate them temporarily. And to put that in perspective, 200 denarii is, a, is just under one year's salary for an average worker at this time. In other words, Philip is responding, Jesus, feeding these people is going to cost us a middle-class salary. How in the world are we going to do that? And even if we have the money to do it, where are we going to go to get the food? There's not enough food in the next surrounding five villages to feed this many people. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. So they went out and searched the crowd and asked the folks that were gathered. And when they had found out, they said, five loaves and two fishes. Now, John's account reports that there was one boy there that day whose mom had sent him with his lunch. He's there with five loaves and two fishes. And these aren't five loaves like we would find in a grocery store. These are likely flat biscuits or cakes. These are like five bagels. And he's got a couple little dried salted fish for his snack. And the disciples in this moment are complaining to Jesus about what they lack. We don't have the food, we don't have the resources, we don't have the time, we don't have the money. But Jesus focuses on what they possess. And in the words of one commentator, that God can multiply even the smallest gifts if they are made available to him. Verse 39, then he commanded them to all to sit down in groups on the green grass so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. 
And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, and he said a blessing, and he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. So imagine this. He, he sends the people out and this very unique use of language. I mean, Mark is not a guy who minces word. He gets to the point. He uses words like urgent and quickly all the time. He's not interested in descriptive phrases, but he specifies for us in this text that, that Jesus told them to sit down on the green grass. And I don't know what the purpose exactly is of communicating that to us, other than, again, it brings to mind the shepherd heart of Jesus Christ. It actually brings to mind Psalm 23. He he makes us lie down in green pastures. He feeds us, he leads us, he brings us to water. This is Jesus as the shepherd demonstrating the love and compassion in his own pastoral heart. And he takes this little boy's lunch and he does what we find Jesus often doing. He looks up. He begins to bless the meal and he begins to break the food and distributes it. And as Jesus continues tearing the food off and handing it out, he doesn't run out of food. And we're not told exactly what that looked like or, or what the people were thinking or as he broke off a piece did another little bit just extend in its place or was he pulling it out of a basket and the people couldn't actually see the food or what's happening here. But But the fact of the matter was that we're told that all the people ate until they were satisfied and there were 12 baskets of food left over. And I want you to read this. I want you to listen closely. The word all here is significant. Nowhere did the Torah and the oral tradition regulate Jewish life more than at table. The effect of kosher was to ensure that only proper foods that were properly prepared were eaten by the properly clean. Unclean foods and unclean persons were necessarily excluded. At the wilderness banquet, however, the ritual hierarchy of kosher is abandoned in favor of an open invitation and the inclusiveness of all people. They all ate and were satisfied. The meal provided by Jesus does not tide them over until something more substantial can be had. The bread of Jesus satisfies because it is an expression of his compassion. And it is given in such measure that there's a basket of leftovers for each of the disciples. Everything these people would have expected a meal to look like was turned upside down in this moment. Because this meal wasn't just open to the ritually clean. It wasn't just open to those who were in good standing with their synagogue or or those who lived on the right part of town. Everyone that had gathered that day was welcome to come. And those that were there were astonished by what he did. They are ready in this moment to crown him as king. But Jesus isn't after fans. He's after disciples. Because according to John's account, immediately after performing this miracle, Jesus begins to stand up and preach a sermon. And in this sermon, here's what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood abides in me, and I in him. In other words, Jesus gets up in front of this crowd that has just been satiated through a miraculous occurrence, and what he declares to them is, you want true, lasting bread? You want the bread that that never makes you hungry again. If you want to be satiated in a way that you've never been satiated in your life, what you need to do is eat of my body and drink of my blood. He says, I am the bread of life. I'm the only thing that can satisfy. I'm the only thing that can redeem. And here's what's incredible. These men who had been with him, watching his ministry now for years, seeing him interact and seeing him do all of the things that only Jesus could do, you know what their response is? In John chapter 6, they said to themselves, this is a hard saying. They hardly know what to say. The words that Jesus has just spoken are so obscure and strange to their ear that they don't even know how to respond. And an amazing verse in John chapter 6, verse 66 It says, and many who followed him left and followed him no more. They had just witnessed him feed 15 to 20,000 people from a little boy's lunch. They watched his hands as he broke the bread. They saw him pray to God and they saw a miracle unfold before their eyes. And the evidence just wasn't just off in the distance in some place that they could see. The evidence was in their hands. And many left that day and followed him no more. See, they, they loved Jesus for the things that he could give them. But they weren't ready to give up anything in order to follow him. The story continues in John 6, verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed. And we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is one of Peter's better moments. This is the guy who's always putting his foot in his mouth and always saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. His best of intentions are almost always wrong. Just horrible gut reactions. But in a moment where he is faced with a truly desperate decision, do I stay with Jesus realizing that that this is going to cost me? And that the thing that to which Jesus is calling me is hard and difficult and painful? Do I stay? Or do I go with the crowd? In this moment, that desperation leads him to the only place of hope that he has. And ultimately, of course, Peter made the right decision because Jesus was going to give up everything to be able to provide the eternal life that he promised. Jesus was going to suffer on the cross. Jesus was going to die the cruel death. 
And he was going to do all of that so that he could fulfill the promise of eternal life that he made in this very same sermon. Because Jesus had also said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus says, do you know what the hope is when life is going the wrong way? When seemingly all around you the world is falling apart. When things in your family are painful or your marriage is on the rocks or your kids are a mess or the bank account isn't meeting the needs. The hope is in the fact that you have a Savior who went to the ends of the earth for you. That the eternal destiny of your soul was determined by God the Father. And that your life was given to the Son. For those of you in this room who might be struggling with the assurance of your salvation and you're wrestling with whether or not you even know God, you've prayed the prayers and you've been around church and you know all the right things, but you're just going, my life doesn't quite match up to what I, what I imagine a Christian's life should actually look like. And I don't know if I even know Jesus the invitation for those who come to him is first that God himself drew you to him. And second, that the will of the Father was that the Son would lose none of those whom the Father had called. In other words, you cannot lose something that you did nothing to gain. If the Father began the work in you, he will be faithful to bring it to completion. Your salvation rests eternally and securely in the hands of an omniscient and omnipotent Father. And Jesus' ministry on earth was the encapsulation of that calling. It was the guarantee of your salvation. It was the assurance of your hope. So the question that lies before you today is clear. Will you only follow Jesus in the green grass where life is easy and your belly is full? Or will you be willing to follow him to the desolate places? Knowing that no matter how hard the road gets, true rest and peace is found only in his presence. Because that's what he guarantees you. The promise of himself. See, the miracle itself wasn't the point. The point of the miracle was to get you to look at the miracle worker. Who is this one who says hard things, difficult sayings, who is the one who's calling you into deeper waters, scarier waters? But with the assurance that he has your life in his hands. It's the hope that he wants you to rely on tonight.
in whatever it is that you're walking through. It's the guarantee of His goodness and His mercy in the quiet times, in the desolate places. Let's pray. God, we thank You for familiar stories. We thank You for stories that point to Jesus Christ's magnificent power. For stories that give evidence of His deity and the fact that there is nothing that is out of His control and His influence. And we also thank You that in the very same story, You give us a sense of the shepherd heart of Christ. That the calling of a shepherd was to give His own life for the sake of the sheep. And God, we thank you that in much the same way that he looked on that crowd today, when Jesus Christ looks on us, that when he looked on us in our mess, in our brokenness, in our sin, in our rebellion, what he saw were sheep who needed a shepherd. And we thank you that he went to the ends of the earth to be that shepherd for us, that he gave himself, that he rose again, so that he could bring into fruition the promise of eternal life. So God, no matter how difficult or how hard or how rocky the road is that we're walking today, would we stand sure and firm in the promise that you are with us in the desolate places, that our rest is found in you and you alone, and that the will of the Father was accomplished in the Son that you would lose no one. Help us to trust in you today. For it's in your name that we pray. Amen.